welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have about 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 25th of October 2021 and this is episode 228. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian Dan McLean about his recent book on the Royal Marines on the Western Front during the First World War. Dan spoke to me from his home in the West Country. Dan, welcome back to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, yes, well, I am a housemaster uh, at Downside School, so it's a boarding school in Somerset, about half an hour south of Bath, and uh, and it's a pretty full-on job. Um, so that does, however, leave me with pretty long school holidays in which to do my research and do some writing. Uh, my background is that I have been a teacher now for 10 years. This is my 10th year. And uh, before that, I was at university. But before that, I spent uh, six years in the Royal Navy. Uh, and that is is part of the link to the the, the theme of my new book. Um, but my interest in the, in the Great War in general has, has always been something that's been partially there, uh, partially through family history when I was when I was uh, much younger, when I was at school. Uh, but also actually through, it was re- really instigated by uh, finding a suitcase, which I think I mentioned when we last spoke, um, <clears throat> a suitcase in uh, the archives, in the a cellar, essentially, in my old school, that contained all of the letters from uh, a young Royal Marines officer killed uh, in November 1916, not just from his service in Royal Marines, but right back to when he arrived at school age 13, uh, and all sorts of photos and uh, his school reports and his scholarship question papers and you know, his receipt for his rugby boots from the high street and his receipt for his laundry from a little old lady in in a village on the Somme and everything in between so that it was such a, an extraordinarily detailed picture uh, of one young man's life um, cut very short when he was 19 that really got me enthralled. So we're going to talk about your latest book on the Royal Marines on the Western Front. First developed in the Royal Marines and why a book on the Royal Marines on the Western <laughs> Front? Well, it was partially because of my own naval background, of course, with the, with the Royal Marines being part of the Navy, not part of the Army. Uh, and that led me to the, the Royal Naval Division. And actually, the thing that led me to, to look more and then to start researching and writing about the Royal Marines uh, on the Western Front was that not many other people had. Um, that The Royal Marines are, are, of course, now famous for commando warfare. And all that sort of uh, that, that style of warfare that they developed from 1940 onwards, very little is written about them before then. And actually, even, even then, a lot more uh, is written about them in the Great War in Gallipoli than anywhere else. And I think it, it almost felt as though they'd suffered slightly from being part of the Royal Naval Division. And when people look at the Royal Naval Division, the, uh, the novelty of sailors in khaki and sailors in trenches is, is a lot more, uh, it stands out a lot more than the Royal Marines doing what you'd expect them to do. So that really made me look at not just the Royal Marine Light Infantry, uh, but the Royal Marine Artillery, very, very much undervalued uh, and understudied area, I think, and also all the very small subsidiary uh, units that did all sorts of things on the Western Front, the cyclist company and the divisional engineers and the, uh, the, everything you could imagine. If the Royal Naval Division needed it, they probably got the Royal Marines to do it. Which leads me to my third question. In, in exactly are or who are the Royal Marines? When were they formed and what is was their purpose? Well, they were founded in the 1660s in London and they were originally the Duke of York and Albany's Maritime Regiment of Foot, uh, wearing very distinctive yellow coats. 
And you can see that's still actually in the, the yellow stripe uh, in the colours of the Royal Marines today. They developed over time to effectively be the Royal Navy's infantry. And you, know, you don't necessarily need to know a huge amount about their history. If you've ever seen any episodes of or read any of uh, the books of uh, Patrick O'Brien uh, or um, Hornblower, you see the Royal Marines therefore being used as landing parties and for cutting out expeditions and all sorts of raids, which in many ways were a sort of prototype commando warfare. From the early 19th century onwards, they developed a much uh, much more of a, an artillery capability as well. And that effectively then became a, almost a separate service. They became known as the Blue Marines and the Red Marines because of the blue and red uniforms in the war that reflected the practice as well of uh, the Royal Artillery <clears throat> and the, the infantry regiments of the line. And they continued in those roles. They were very much a sort of uh, colonial policeman type role uh, quite often, with the Royal Marine Artillery also manning turrets on major war warships as well. Uh, in the war, they were still a, quite a small force at the beginning of the war, but they were incredibly diverse and incredibly flexible. So, for example, the Royal, Ma Royal Marine Artillery uh, was largely split. The land-based element was split into two new brigades, the Howitzer Brigade, who ended up having the largest allied guns on the whole of the Western Front, the 15-inch Howitzers built by the Coventry Ordnance Factory. And they were offered to the army. They were built on spec by the factory. Uh, and they were offered to the army who effectively said, not really. We don't really have a need for them. They're impressive, but their range isn't that great. No, we'll leave it, thanks. And so Churchill uh, then, as First Lord of the Admiral, said, fantastic, I'll take them for the Navy. And as well as that, the Royal Marine Artillery were very much at the forefront of the development of uh, anti-aircraft warfare in the First World War. They had batteries of uh, lorries with... I was going to say, I wouldn't say any particular gun because it the guns changed uh, quite often throughout the war. And there were small anti-aircraft units that could dart about the Western Front, particularly uh, in Flanders. And they had their own mobile workshops uh, and they were constantly developing their capability, developing their own fuses, trying out different mountings, different, different uh, ammunition to see what would work and really developing anti-aircraft uh, artillery for the first time in any detail. So it was that flexibility that uh, adaptability that really made the Royal Marines uh, a great asset during the First World War. They were not necessarily the most fashionable unit um, because being part of the Navy, they, they, they didn't have the same uh, history or traditions of the Army in terms of, in a long time in the past, of course, buying a commission and the smartness or not of different regiments. Uh, and so they were left more to their own devices. They had a lot more independence uh, within the Royal Naval Division, particularly uh, that became apparent when uh, Brigadier General Cameron Shute took over command as, a, uh, as an army officer in command of the Royal Naval Division. He became quite infamous for trying to suppress uh, the naval traditions and practices, and he always lost. Um, uh, it, it, they, they kept their identity and that really bound them together and drove them on to develop this identity in any way they could. Established the Royal Marines before the war, and how big, the, big did they come during the war? <clears throat> uh, off the top of my head, I think it was about 19,000 uh, at the beginning of the war, but that was uh, Royal Marine artillery and Royal Marine light infantry. And also, of course, it's, it must be remembered that there were a large number of Royal Marines uh, at sea still throughout the war. Major warships all still had a, a detachment, um, and that, that carried on right until the late 20th century. It did uh, increase dramatically during the, the course of the war. At the beginning of the war, when the Royal Marine Flying Brigade, as they were originally known, was formed uh, under a, a plan put together a few years earlier 
by Prince Louis Battenberg. Uh, they brought in everyone they could in terms of uh, retired uh, Royal Fleet Reserve, etc. And that worked at first, but then they realised that they had a huge number of rather elderly senior NCOs uh, and not quite enough Marines and certainly not enough officers. So their, their recruiting uh, was, was quite intense during the war, partially from uh, army sources, but also through uh, the Royal Naval Division's own uh, depot at Crystal Palace and then down at Blandford Camp as well, which is still going today, of course, as uh, the home of the Royal Signals. So they, they did increase dramatically. I, I'm afraid off the top of my head, I can't give you a precise number uh, for the end of the war. But they they went up to four battalions uh, of Royal Marine Light Infantry, the fourth battalion being raised specifically for the raid on Zeebrugge uh, and uh, uh, disappeared afterwards, it, never to be seen again. That was their one role, really, as well as the Royal Marine Artillery, uh, the, the Howitzer Brigade, the Anti-Aircraft Brigade, all the ancillary units uh, and those at sea. Also, and they were actually part of the 63rd Royal Naval Division that mm. involved in on the front. <clears throat> yes, well, the 63rd uh, Royal Naval Division was, uh, uh, it was an interesting animal uh, because it had a number of battalions, infantry battalions made up of sailors. Now, the Navy uh, essentially didn't need them in the fleet. And so they were put into battalions named after famous admirals, Nelson, Drake, Anson, etc. Howe. Uh, as well as the 1st and 2nd Battalion's Royal Marine Light Infantry. Now, the Royal Marines had been organised in port-based battalions at the beginning of the war, but when they uh, came back from Gallipoli, where they they suffered really quite heavily, being one of the first in and one of the last out, they were reorganised into to two battalions of Royal Marine Light Infantry. And there were also always uh, a, a few battalions in the brigade of uh, from regular or reserve army as well. So the HAC served with them and parts of the, the uh, Royal Dublin Fusiliers uh, and the um, Bedfordshire Regiment as well at different times. And they didn't go home from when they sailed for Gallipoli until the end of the war. So Gallipoli was winding down. It was clear that they were all going to be evacuated. They were one of the last out. Uh, they, were, they were at Madras in, uh, in the Aegean essentially waiting for their orders to sail home when they heard instead that they're going to sail for Marseille. And from Marseille, they got the train straight up to the Western Front. And they served really throughout the rest of the war, right up until the armistice and indeed beyond, uh, on all up the Western Front. Now, one of their most famous uh, actions is probably the Battle of the Ong in November 1916. Uh, the whole of the Royal Naval Division uh, were in action there. Uh, but Gavrel and Millamont and many, many of the, the, the famous names uh, of 1916-17 of and into 1918 and the 100, 100 Days Offensive, they were fully involved in all of that. Now, your book features the, an account of 2nd Lieutenant Lewis Stokes and his experience. Could you him? Yes, well, um, <clears throat> Lewis Stokes was a vicar's son from Cambridge. Uh, his dad was uh, the Reverend Dr. Henry Stokes, and he was vicar of uh, St Paul's in Cambridge. And Louis grew up there, and I had a, a rather idyllic-sounding childhood uh, in, in the vicarage in Cambridge, went to uh, St Faith's Prep School, which is still going, still open today. And we have all the, the accounts of his childhood holidays, letters home from holidays on a farm in Essex, uh, his, his bird-watching diary from when he was about nine or ten. And his mother's family were rather grander, than his father's family. They were the, the Manda family uh, of uh, Wolverhampton. They owned a large, they made all their money from making paint, actually, paint and, and ink, I think. Uh, 
and the company was still going until the 1990s. But all of the male members of his mother's family had been to rugby, to rugby school. And so uh, it was decided to send Louis there as well. And they, they did struggle to scrape together the fees, but they managed it. He sat for an academic scholarship, uh, didn't get it. But uh, in those days, until the 1960s, the, the housemaster, sorry, the headmaster ran a boarding house himself. And so the headmaster thought, well, he's not quite got a scholarship, but I think he's a good thing. So I'll have him in, in my house, in schoolhouse in rugby. And he carried on writing letters home. And they say, we have all of these documents, uh, everything from you know, a letter home in which he says he's had to buy his new top hat, which they had to wear to chapel on Sundays then. And it was a bit big. Uh, so he had to stuff it with newspaper. And then here is the receipt for that top hat from Salter's shop in, in Rugby High Street. It's that level of detail. Uh, telegrams from the headmaster saying that he's been injured uh, in rugby, he's got concussion. Um, a letter, a quick note on OTC headed paper, which is quite nice, from Louis to his mother uh, at the end of term saying, I'm walking home as haven't got money to train, don't get excited. Now, when he says he's walking home, bear in mind that's from Warwickshire to Cambridge. So it took him several days. And at the same time, we have a letter from his sister saying how they were having a rather grand lunch when he arrived. And he arrived at the door covered in mud, essentially looking all brown apart from his blue eyes and thoroughly fed up with the journey and regretting it. So the way in which all the documents tie in like that is, is lovely. Um, he wanted to, to join up. Lots of his friends were joining up. He was writing letters home saying how so-and-so who used to sit behind me in maths has been killed. So-and-so who used to give me chocolate and English lessons has been killed. His dad was, I'm not sure we'd strictly say a pacifist, but certainly very anti-war. Uh, and it really took the headmaster, Dr. Albert David, to persuade uh, the Reverend Dr. Stokes to allow Louis to join up. So at Christmas uh, 1915, Louis left school and he was uh, just 18. He was, he was 18 in, in July <clears throat> of that year. And he joined the Royal Marine Light Infantry. Now he was effectively given a letter that said, here's your kit list. Here's your uniform allowance. Find a tailor, get some kits and get to Fortin Barracks in Gosport. And Fortin Barracks had been, it had been the home, one of the homes of the Royal Marine Light Infantry since the 1840s. Uh, it was the home of the, in, in peacetime, of the, um, the Portsmouth Battalion of the RMLI. And he arrived there, met some other new temporary officers. No one was there to meet him. He got off the train at Portsmouth Harbour Station and was saluted by some Marines and had no idea what to do in return uh, because he'd never been in public in his uniform before and had no training. And he arrived at Fortin Barracks and got stuck in lots of uh, route marches across the, the South Downs and the, the, the Hampshire countryside, lots of digging trenches. And eventually then he was sent off to the depot uh, at uh, Blandford in Dorset, and from then out to uh, the 2nd Battalion Royal Marine Light Infantry in France. And he was, it, it's then actually that the, the exciting bit, if I can put it that way, is to match it up with the Battalion War Diary and to see how his letters, and I'm sure it's the same with any set of letters like that, how his letters reflect exactly what they're doing at the time. And you can see he was sent off to various courses, signaling course, and he got thoroughly fed up because he was spending a month in a chateau, uh, living a comfortable life and just feeling very awkward, actually, that he knew that the rest of the battalion were in the trenches and writing letters home saying that he just felt uncomfortable doing that. But other rather poetic letters uh, about the, um, the, the tunnels of flowers over the tops of the communication trenches. And he lists all the flowers and extraordinarily, the first two flowers that he mentions as being most prolific are the poppy and the cornflower, which of course nowadays have such great significance with relevance to the Western Front. Um, and eventually it became clear that something big was about to happen. We're heading into late autumn, uh, early winter of 1916. Uh, Louis is now 19 and 
it was the Battle of the Ong. So we know his last movements from his company commander, uh, Major Stoughton, who was himself uh, severely injured, injured and later died of his wounds a couple of days after the battle. And they were right up uh, against the, the left-hand edge of the brigade, against the, the boundary. <clears throat> and they had the 51st Highland Brigade to their left. So if if you know the uh, the Newfoundland Park uh, on, on the Somme, effectively, the right-hand fence of the park, when you're facing across no man's land, that's roughly the border, the boundary between the two brigades. Uh, divisions, sorry, divisions. Um, and so Louis was effectively up against that uh, that fence. Five o'clock in the morning, they crawl out of the trenches, lying in the mud, waiting for the off. And he didn't didn't get very far. Uh, the last he was seen of, uh, Major Storson said, was that he had lost his own platoon uh, and had gathered together a load of uh, Gordon Highlanders who had also lost their platoon commander and was leading forwards, revolver in hand. And the next we know is that he was found uh, by the Seaford Highlanders a few hours later and was buried by their chaplain, the 6th Battalion, I think it was, Seaford Highlanders, in Maylewood Cemetery, uh, where he is today, in a, a very, if I can say it, I'm not, it sounds an odd thing to say, but a very pleasant uh, cemetery on the southern edge of the village, uh, looking out over, over the Picardy countryside. And the other key theme in your book is the raid on Zeebrugge in April 1918. That's about what the Royal Marines did in that uh, famous raid. Yes, well, they they did pretty much everything. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was an admiralty-led raid, it was led by an admiral as well, uh, but it was, in many ways, it was a sort of bridging link between those old uh, raiding parties, landing parties, cutting out raids, etc., of the of the Napoleonic Wars and the commando warfare of the 1940s onwards. So there were both Royal Marine artillery and uh, Royal Marine light infantry involved, and uh, effectively the aim was to block Zeebrugge Harbour so that the German submarines coming down the, the canal from Bruges couldn't get out uh, into the channel. So there were three elderly cruisers which were going to be sunk as block ships in the harbour. But the Royal Marines were largely concentrated on, uh, in, I should say, HMS Vindictive, <clears throat> who was similarly elderly and was uh, very much uh, adapted for this purpose with large swinging uh, sort of hinged gangways, a bit like the, the it's a, a Roman technique, really, actually, almost like a drawbridge uh, to, to lower down onto the mole, the, the big pier at Zeebrugge, so that the Royal Marine Light Infantry could storm ashore onto the mole uh, to effectively stop the batteries there from defending the harbour whilst these old cruisers were driven in uh, and sunk in position. As well as that, uh, the there were some extraordinary looking little howitzers mounted on the decks of Vindictive, uh, manned by the Royal Marine Artillery. And all of this was supported by a, a, a small C-class submarine, which was driven under the, uh, the, the steel bridge that linked the, the Malt and the mainland and blown up so that the German troops on, on the mainland couldn't come and reinforce the batteries uh, on, the, on the mole. And it was an extraordinary, an extraordinary thing because the, the cruiser HMS Vindictive was being held against the mole wall whilst the Warmarines stormed ashore by two Mersey tugs, uh, which had been recruited for the purpose. And it was ultimately successful. Uh, there were a large number of casualties that was expected, and it was frankly unavoidable in uh, in such uh, an operation. And it was the 4th Battalion RMLI, as I said, they were raised purely for this purpose, and they never existed again afterwards. Uh, the King came to visit them when they were training at Deal, and even he wasn't told exactly what they were being trained for. Some sort of special operation, and yes, they're marvellous, they're doing a good job, etc., but he didn't know exactly what was going to happen either. And there were several 
VCs won that day. Uh, the Royal Naval Lieutenant who commanded the, the small submarine uh, won one. But then there's, there were two awarded to the Royal Marines under the uh, slightly unusual method, effectively of, it's not quite, but in effect, of election. Um, <laughs> and they were asked who they thought deserved the most. And it, it's something that is a provision under the constitutions of the Victoria Cross. I don't know whether it's ever been used since, but that resulted in uh, two individuals, Sergeant Norman Finch, and uh, Major Edward Bamford, both being awarded the Victoria Cross. Uh, Norman Finch went on and survived the war. Uh, Major Bamford sadly died later uh, of an unknown illness. He was off the coast of China, um, was buried in the British uh, cemetery in Shanghai, which unfortunately is now under a car park. So we don't quite know where he's buried anymore. And my penultimate, what are the Royal Marines remember their First World War legacy today? Well, they do have the, the core dates, <clears throat> which are you know, a list of, of important uh, dates throughout the, the core history of the Royal Marines that are commemorated to this day. And I think particularly the size of the Royal Marines means that they're still, just as they were in 1914 and 1918, they're very keen to preserve their identity. Uh, they are very conscious of that identity and in, in, a, in a positive way, rather protective of it. So there is an element of, of simply education in core history, but also actually I think really in just who they are and what they do. It was that experience of the war, uh, both in the front line, but also in the big set pieces, perhaps I could say it like that, at Leipzigbrugge, that helped to develop and to cement their reputation for flexibility, for adaptability, uh, that meant that actually when it came to the development of, of commando warfare, in 1940 onwards, it wasn't solely the War Marines who were involved in that development, but it became their thing. And perhaps to the detriment of some other units, you know, uh, the, the artillery, etc., nowadays who have their own commandos, when people, I think, in the general public think of commandos, they think of War Marines. And I, I think that that uh, ability was largely down to their experiences. Yes, from the 1790s onwards. Um, and of course, their, their cap badge with the, the single motto, uh, single battle honour of Gibraltar reflects very much a similar sort of raid uh, in the earlier days of their history. But that sort of adaptability, that sort of tenacity, really, that underpins their, their reputation today was very much developed during the First World War. And my last question, um, it's obviously October and Christmas coming up. Where can people learn more and get your book? <laughs> well, uh, so it's been published by Pen and Source, so it's available uh, from, from them directly. Uh, and of course, from all the usual outlets of Amazon, Waterstones, etc. Uh, but also from my website, if you'd like a signed copy, uh, and that's danieljmclean.net. And you'll see there's a shop page there. Uh, and both my books are available there. Dan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.